Thank you for tuning in to listen to this week's sermon at Bethel Church. Every week, Pastor Jeremy Dean delivers a powerful message rooted in Scripture, a heart for the gospel, and a love for God and His church. We also hope you check out the Bethel Church podcast, which release on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. throughout the year. To learn more about Bethel Church, you can visit lovingbethel.com. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Here's Pastor Jeremy Dean. John chapter 2. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John this morning. And as you get there, as you turn to John 2, I want to ask you this question. What did you come in here this morning expecting? You don't have to shout the answer. I just want to think about it. What did you come in this morning expecting? All right, hang on just a second. Before I ask you that question, if there's somebody sitting near you, just kind of elbow them a little bit. They're an hour less of sleep this morning. They're going to need some help. Right? We're all feeling that this morning, right? 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 We come with expectations. You know, I heard somebody say recently, just kind of make this joke, and we may maybe you said it before, thought it before, you know, that that you know, disappointment comes when our expectations are met, right? So if we lower our expectations, we don't have to worry about being disappointed, right? Right? If we just set the expectations so low, then we can't just like we can't be disappointed when those expectations aren't met. We kind of joke about that, uh, but coming into worship, coming into this place, coming in to hear, and not only just to hear, but to sing and declare these songs that we just sang in praise and worship to God, to Jesus our King, right? To raise a hallelujah. Coming in to do that, coming in to to open the the Word of God and to, to hear what He has to say, we come with a certain level of expectations. And the question this morning is, when it comes to you and God, are your expectations of God too low? Are you, what do you expect God to do? What do you expect God to say? Do you expect that when you leave this morning, that you're going to be the same as you were when you came in? You ought not to. Because every time we open His Word, every time we sing His praise, every time we gather as a body, as as we gather as a church, God has something to do. God has a work He wants to work, and He has something for you. And it's not that we just simply come in expecting God to give us things. We come in with an expectation that God is doing things above and beyond, exceeding what we can even dream of. Is that your heart this morning? As we open God's Word, is that where you are? Are you prepared and ready for God to do something in you, speak something into your life, do a little work of conviction in your heart that you weren't expecting when you came in this morning? I hope so. I hope that's what you're ready for. In John chapter 2, we're just going to go ahead and dive right in into this passage and and start reading it. And so look at verse 1. We're going to pick up, to kind of give you the context of what's going on 
in chapter 1, we, we, we met Jesus. Jesus came and he, and he, was, he was part of John the Baptist's ministry in, this, in the sense that John the Baptist, and he, was, he had a public ministry. A lot of people were following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was all about pointing other people to Jesus. That, that John the Baptist himself was not the one that people needed to hear from. He had a message from God for sure, but his message was that your, your salvation and your forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we read through that in John chapter 1. And then Jesus kind of comes onto the scene, and the, there's four disciples that we know of right now that are following him Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and Peter, right? So when we read about his disciples, that's who we're talking about. And so Jesus is now on the scene, and he's beginning to do ministry. And in chapter 2, that's what we're kind of seeing a glimpse of. We're getting a narrative right out of the middle of what Jesus' ministry is. And in verse 1, it says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. What's the mother of Jesus' name? Mary. Good job. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there was six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are big, big pots. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Don't forget that phrase. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, and after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for waking us up and bringing us here. God, I thank you for giving us your word that we can hear from you and see Jesus. We can see what he did. We can hear what he said, and we can answer the call that he gives to us. Lord, I pray, Father, you do things we don't expect this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would exceed our expectations this morning and do a work in us. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives that we would raise a hallelujah, that we would sing hallelujah and praise to your name for what you are doing. We give this time to you. We trust you with it. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Now, as we read through this, there's a few things we want to kind of unpack with the context, right? Um, the, the big idea this morning is simply this, if you're taking notes, that faith grows the more you are with Jesus. If you don't walk away with anything else this morning, walk away with that, mark that down, read about it later this week, meditate on it, Find scripture that talks about it. Faith grows the more you are with Jesus. How often are you with him? How much time do you spend with him? How much time do you listen to him? How much time do you obey him? Those are the things we're talking about. And so to get the context, if you look at verses 1 and 2, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, we, we, we don't know a whole lot about 
the, the weddings and things of that sort that took place and why we have ceremonies and the different cultures and why the different ceremonies and things are there. At least I don't have a lot of that information. I do know that ceremonies and wedding ceremonies are, have been taking place for a long time. If we go back, I was in a marriage conference yesterday, and I was glad to be part of this marriage conference. It went really well yesterday. There was about 50 or so people there at this conference, and it was great. It was good for me to be a part of and speak in, but it was also good for me to be there and listen and learn. I enjoyed that. Well, one of the things that, we, we, that, that was really kind of came out is, as we talk about that, as we dig into this passage, is that there was a wedding that was taking place. When we, we celebrate weddings today, you either, either have it in a church or the popular thing now is to have it in a barn. I don't really understand why that is, you know, but that, that, that's, that we have different cultural things when it comes to weddings. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. The context of this is at a wedding. And Jesus says that the, the, the main idea of this passage is not about marriage. It's not about the wedding. But one thing I want to highlight is that, wed, that marriage is good. That the joining of man and woman is a good thing. Jesus showed up and he celebrated a marriage. He celebrated the, the, the man and woman making vows to one another, making promises to one another that they intended to keep. The promise to love one another in a biblical way. That is a sacrificial way. That is a way that I'm going to give up myself for my spouse. That I'm going to love my spouse with all that I am, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, no matter how I feel about it. The world gets that wrong, do we not? They think love is a feeling. This was part of what we talked about yesterday. I just had to throw that out there for those of you who weren't there. That The world says love is about how I feel, and when I don't feel it anymore, I must not love you anymore. And that's not true. Love is a choice. Love is a decision you make. And when you say, I do, when you make those vows, which is a good thing to do, you're saying that I'm going to love you as Christ has loved me through it all. And so if you're here this morning, and that's maybe, the, that's maybe what you need to hear, maybe you're struggling with that, I, 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 I encourage you and, 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 and really just hope you understand that God has called us to love our spouse in the way that he has loved us. Jesus is at a wedding. Now, this wedding is, says that it is in Cana in Galilee, right? It's in Cana in Galilee. Jesus, as you know, was born in Bethlehem, right? That's where he was. But when they, 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 when, after he was born, they had to flee and go to Egypt for a time. And when they came back from Egypt to, as they escaped persecution, they came back and they settled in a place called Nazareth. Just to give you a little bit of a geography, Nazareth is in a region of Israel called Galilee. It's kind of to the northern part of the country. Right, and then, but and then below Galilee, you have an area called Samaria, and then south of Samaria, you have an area called Judea, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. They're down in Judea in the south. So Jesus is doing ministry up in the northern part of Israel, in the region of Galilee, and he was, and he's familiar with that region because he grew up in Nazareth, right? Grew up with his mom, grew up with his, with his dad for a time, I suppose. He grew up learning to become a carpenter like his dad. When we know from Scripture that Jesus actually moved away from Nazareth at one point, Matthew 4.13 tells us that he settled in a city called Capernaum. 
In fact, at the very end of this passage in verse 12, that's where he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples go and spend a few days. They leave Cana. They, they went to Cana to visit and participate or and be, to answer the invitation to this wedding in Cana. And then after the wedding was over, they went back home to Capernaum. Jesus is familiar with this region. He's familiar with the places. He's familiar with the people. It's an awesome idea. I think it astounds me because when we think about Jesus as being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it's so awesome to think that here he is sitting at his round table, right, with his name marker right there. This is the place for Jesus, his disciples, and his mom, right? And, and they're sitting there and all this this stuff is going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I know weddings then did not take place and had to follow the same customs as they do today. But, but imagine that Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting down at a wedding festival, a wedding celebration, at a reception, and he is celebrating this marriage with his family and his friends, and he's right there in the middle of it. He's one of us. It's an amazing thing to think about who Jesus is, that God with us, He came, born in a manger, right? But He came and He sat at the wedding table. He was at the party, right? Now, the next thing I want you to understand about the context here is how they did weddings in that day. It says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Here's... Here's how weddings took place. Chuck Swindoll tells me, as I did my studies this week, I read through Chuck Swindoll's commentary, and this is what he says about weddings. Marriages in those days were arranged by parents. They were, a contract was prepared. Vows were spoken in the synagogue. Tokens, like our rings, but they probably had different things, were exchanged. The man and the woman went to their respective homes. That's a big difference for us. After the tokens and vows and things are exchanged for us today, we don't go to our respective homes. We don't separate and go back to our mom's home or our, or our parents' home. When we get married, we go home together. But in that day and time, when, when they exchanged vows, it was like on the front end of their engagement. And so their engagement was binding. That's why in Matthew, when, when Joseph finds that, that Mary is with child and they were betrothed, it's as if she had already broken the marriage vow. Right, So the context here is that at the beginning of their betrothal, at the beginning of their engagement, they've already entered into these vows, but they go home for a time for about 2 to 12 months, and they live in, apart from each other until the end of the betrothal period. They come together, and this is what's happening here, this wedding. They come together, they consummate the marriage, and then they celebrate with family and friends for at least a week or so at a time, for days at a time. And it's the groom's family's responsibility to provide the food and provide the drink to provide the wine for these several days of celebration. And in verse 3, something embarrassing happens. I mean, just imagine when you were preparing your reception or you were preparing your rehearsal and you ran out of food. Right? You would be embarrassed. Your family would be embarrassed by that. That's the same context that's going on here. And in verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Difficult thing. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Now, a few things there. Do you know the first thing that struck me about that verse, what, what Jesus said? Woman. 
How many of you moms, grandmas, ladies, want a man to come to you and say, woman, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. And when we read scripture, that's the first thing that kind of struck me is I would never call my mom a woman. Right? But, but here's the, here, understand the culture, understand the context. In that day and time, it wasn't disrespectful. In fact, that's how Jesus would often and others would often speak to other ladies. It was a term of endearment. It wasn't like we read it today. He was not being disrespectful. He was not being rude to his mother. He was not doing any of that sort. He was still kind to her. He, even when he was on the cross, just to give you this, this example, when he was on the cross and bleeding out, he referred her to her the same, to the, in the same way. And telling her that John would be the one to take care of her. He said, woman, he will take care of you. And so it's a term of endearment. It wasn't a term that was a snide remark. But he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And the, the, the question that he's really getting at is, 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 you're at the wedding, you're at the reception table, you're not responsible for these things. And mom, how, how is this our problem? This is, this is not our issue. This is, this is not our place, right? She had certain expectations, I think, though. Mary had certain expectations. But I want you to notice the next thing that he says, though. He asks that question, and then he makes this statement, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by my hour has not yet come? He, he, he shares several things, or several times in Scripture, he makes the statement that my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. As we read through the Gospel, we'll see that. And there's times when he says my hour has come. And I want to give you an example in John 17 of what he really means by this. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is John 17, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said as he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. When Jesus talks about my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, what He's referring to is the time when He would be glorified with God. When He would walk through the crucifixion, dying in our place on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, rising on the third day, and then ascending to heaven to be with the Father. That's the hour He is speaking of. That that's the purpose He came for. That's what He eventually accomplishes at the end of His ministry. Here we are at the beginning of His ministry, and He says to Mary, He says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. The time for the fulfillment of my ministry has not yet come. There's something Mary's missing. Maybe we don't really know what Mary expected Jesus to do, we, we ha we're pretty confident, I would think, that Mary had an idea of who her son was. If you go back and you look at the, the accounts in Luke and, and the conversations the angels had with Mary and that Mary had with other prophets like, like Simeon and Anna, she had an expectation that Jesus, this son of hers, was destined by God for great things, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Christ, that He is the Savior of the world. I mean, these are awesome things. And maybe in this moment, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I say the beginning because up until this point, Jesus is about 30 years old, and to our knowledge, and what Scripture shows us, He hasn't done any miracles yet. In fact, this one's the first one. So, so maybe her expectation is that, that Jesus... Maybe he's going to call somebody he knows and bring some more wine over. 
Or maybe he's going to go over to the groom's family and kind of complain to them and say, hey, you guys didn't prepare well. You, you need to get this right and fix this. Is there somebody you can call? What, you know, I don't know what her expectations were, but she knew that he could do something. She knew that he could do something. And what Jesus is saying to her, look, my hour has not come. It's not my time yet to be glorified. This is not what I've come for. It's not that he's saying he wouldn't do it, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he's making sure she understands that, that, that mom, me just providing wine for this family to finish out their celebration is small expectations. It's small potatoes. This is little stuff. I put it this way, if you're taking notes, Faith begins immature. I'm not knocking Mary. I'm not putting her down. But Mary's faith was an immature faith. Did she know Jesus could do something? Yeah. And why, why do I say that? Because she says in verse 5, she said to the servants, after Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, she doesn't say, Jesus, get with it. What do you mean your hour hasn't come? No, she doesn't say that. She turns to the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. She expected something. She knew he could do something, you know, and, and, and she, she wanted this celebration to be good and to end well and for it to go well for the groom and the bride and the family and all that kind of stuff, right? She, she wanted it to be, these are friends and family and others, right? She wanted the best for them. She had good intentions. She had faith. Don't hear me wrong. Faith begins immature. It's still faith. It's still believing that Jesus can. It's still believing that Jesus will, that He's able to do great things. But sometimes, well often, I think every time, faith begins immature. It's a young faith. There were things that she didn't yet understand. I'll give you an illustration. I mean, my faith began immature. But I, re I remember, I remember when, when I first became a Christian, you know, I didn't know anything about really serving and ministry and stuff like that. I was completely dependent on, on, on other people and God to help me learn and to grow. I remember a story talking to a friend of mine a few years ago. He's, he's a little bit older than me. Uh, and and, and he, he talked about when he, in his 20s, became a Christian. Man, he was so fired up for the Lord. Have you, have you been around someone who just became a Christian? Man, they are so excited about their faith, about their new life. They're, they're, they're ready to share Jesus with, with, with whoever. They're ready to tell the story to whoever. They're, they're not nearly as ashamed or, or, or they, don't, they don't nearly hesitate as much as we do as that, as that excitement and stuff kind of wears off over time. It's new to them and it's fresh and they're so bold and they're so ready. They could conquer the world. They can bring everyone to Christ, right? But the truth is, while that's a real faith and it's there, it still needs to be nurtured. It still needs to grow. It still needs to, be, to grow in knowledge and in time with the Lord. And my friend Ray, when he became a Christian, he was like that. He was so excited. So three days later, the church, they had a need for a Sunday school teacher, so they asked Ray to teach the Sunday school class. 
And what he would tell you, I'm glad that it wasn't a train wreck, even though sometimes that can be. But what he would tell you is, man, that was the hardest thing I had to do. I wish that somebody would have come alongside me and just helped me or walked me through it and talked with me through it and coached me up on it. There were so many things I wish I did differently. There were so many things I wish I said differently. There's so many things I didn't know. Because his faith was immature. It was young faith, not young in years, but just young in experience and wisdom. And I think that's where Mary was a little bit here. It's not that she didn't believe in Jesus. It's not that she didn't have faith in Jesus. It's not that she didn't believe he could do things. It's that she wasn't quite understanding yet what his purpose was. And I guarantee you that grew from Mary over time. And that grew for Ray over time. It grew for me over time. The next thing I want you to see, take a look at verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. If you're taking notes, the next point is this. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. That was just a cheesy way of saying they go hand in hand together. You can't, you can't have one without the other. You can't say that I believe in God and not do what He says. You can't say I'm going to do everything that God says and not believe in God. Because you're going to get it wrong. You're going to fall short. Faith without works, Scripture says, is dead. Works without faith is the same way. It's dead. It doesn't matter. It's useless. It's futile. Faith and obedience go together. They are two sides of the same coin. So what did Jesus do? Look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. What does that mean? What are we talking about there? So there was these big jars these, that they had in the homes because in Jewish tradition, they had to cleanse themselves, wash themselves, purify themselves before they would eat, before they would take a meal together, before they would go you know, walking and traipsing throughout the house. They had these pots to wash and to cleanse. And I say Jewish tradition because even though in Scripture it is clear that, that we are purified by washing, and today we are purified by washing in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Jews kind of added these extra things, these extra rules, these extra traditions just to make sure that we got it right. We want to make sure that we really, really don't miss out on this. We want to make sure we got it right. So they had these pots there. Right, And they held about 20 to 30, 30 gallons of water, so they were, they were pretty big. And it was all about purification. And Jesus told the servants, he said, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. A few observations I want you to make about obedience here. First is this was a no questions asked obedience. Mary said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So understand this, who's giving the instructions? Jesus is giving the instructions. And how did the servants respond when Jesus said, fill these jars with water? They did it. No questions asked. 
They didn't negotiate. They didn't say, hey, well, you know what? We don't need to fill all of them with water. That's a lot of water. We only have a couple more days of this stuff left. You're right. I mean, we, we don't, you know, people are already here. They don't need to bathe anymore or wash anymore. They didn't negotiate. They didn't ask questions. Why do we need to fill all these up? The problem, Jesus, is we don't have any wine. Why are you telling us to go get water? That doesn't make any sense. That's silly. No questions asked. No negotiating. It says that Jesus said, fill the jars with water, and so the servants did. How about our obedience? When Jesus tells us to do something, how often do we negotiate? How often do we ask questions? How often do we want to argue? When Jesus says to do something, it ought to be a no questions asked do it. The second thing about their obedience is that it was complete. Look, it says they filled them to the brim, all the way up. They didn't lack in effort. They didn't get it close and say, oh, that's just enough. We'll get by with that. They didn't settle for the minimum. When Jesus said to do something, they gave it everything they've got, and they made sure that what he said to do was completely done. I made sure that I did it. How about our obedience? When Jesus tells us to do something, do we completely do it? Do we go until we make sure that it's done? Do we cut corners? Do we leave things unsaid? Do we leave things undone? When Je- Who's doing the telling here? The Son of God. The Messiah. An obedience that has no questions asked. An obedience that is complete. I think about it this way. I, I, you know, I had a terrible time as a child keeping my room clean. I have a terrible time as an adult keeping things clean. All right, I, I love my wife, and she loves me because she's still with me after 15 years, and I can't keep things clean. Anyway, when I was a kid, my room was like tornado alley. Right? I mean, it was everything was on the floor. I, I, my chest of drawers was empty, or at least things were just hanging out of it, right? Mom would say, you know, clean up your room, and I couldn't stand it. I still can't stand to clean. You know, I, I, I just don't like it. It's not fun for me. It's not a hobby for me. I don't, I'm not drawn to it. I'm pushed and repelled away from it. I mean, I just don't like it, never really have. But when mom told me to clean my room, you, you think I'm going to say that I would just jump in and do it? No, I didn't. I'd go to my room, I'd close the door, and I would just do whatever, right? And then she'd come back a little bit later, and she said, I told you to clean this room up, right? And so, I, so get these clothes off the floor, right? And so what I would do, she'd leave, and I'm aggravated, and I don't want to do this. And so I'd just grab all these clothes, whether they're clean or they're dirty, I don't even know if I wore it, and grab it, and just go throw it in the closet and close the closet. She won't see it, and that's clean, right, you know? And she'd come back a little bit later, and she, she'd look, and she'd see things were not on the floor, and then she'd go and open up my closet. I'm like, why did you do that? Why'd you open my closet? You know, and then she said, I told you to clean this room up. You need to get this room clean. So and so's coming over. We need to make sure that this looks good. What, you know, that whatever the reason was. The expectation from my mom was that I need to do what she says. After a while, my room got clean, my butt got tore up, and it wasn't happy either way. I share that simply to share, but look, if I had just cleaned, no questions asked. It would have gone a lot easier for me. If I'd have just done the job completely like she told me to do it, it had gone a lot easier for me. And then I thought, well, you know, what if my brother told me to go clean my room? What would I do? Nothing. I wouldn't have picked a thing up. 
And the difference there is that my mom has authority. My mom can tell me to clean my room and I better do it. My brother couldn't do that. He didn't have authority. Not like that. Unless my mom told him to come tell me. And then I'd argue with that and say, she didn't say that. You get the idea. When Jesus says to do something, we do it. Now here's the other thing that I think is is, is really interesting in in this part here. Because the servants, we we don't see anything in here about the faith of the servants. Mary told the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Jesus gives them instructions. And they are servants. That's their job. They're supposed to do what they're told to do. So we don't know if it was really a faith issue for them. I'm not trying to spiritualize the servants in this text. But we can learn something about their obedience. We can learn something not only about no questions asked, not only about completely obeying, but trusting. Trusting that Mary tells me to do something, I ought to do it. Trusting that Jesus told me to do something, I ought to do it. When Jesus tells you to do something, do you trust Him with it? I use cleaning your room as an example, but what if He said, husband, love your wives? As Christ loves the church, giving Himself up for her, sacrificing your whole life for her. Do you obey like that? Is it no questions asked? Is it completely? Do you trust Jesus with it? Wives, when he says, submit to your husbands, to be that helpmate, to be that partner, to be that truth teller, to be the supporter of your husband, do you obey like that? When he says, love your enemies, forgive those who have wronged you. When he says, children, obey your parents, when he says, go and make disciples. When he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the instruction of the Lord. Do you obey Jesus? Do you trust that what he's telling you to do is good? Here's the thing. Here's the next point I want you to get. When we believe Jesus, we do the things he expects. When we believe Jesus, when we trust Jesus, we do the things that He expects. Faith and obedience go together. They go together. There's there's no questions asked. There's no no cutting corners. There's no doing the minimum. It's it's all or nothing. It's if Jesus is Lord of your life, you cannot say no to Him, and you can't say, maybe I'll get to it later. It's only yes, Lord. How you doing? How am I doing? Here's the next thing. I want you to see this. When we obey Jesus, He does things we don't expect. When we obey Jesus, He does things that we don't expect. He exceeds our expectations. Do you believe in miracles? 
You know, our world is skeptical about miracles. They don't, most of our world doesn't believe in miracles, or at least the secular world. They don't believe that miracles can happen. You know, I want to give you a little bit of a definition of what I'm talking about when it comes to miracles. It's, I did, did a little studying on this this week, and I'll put it this way. One thing I want you to understand is that since God exists, and I didn't put the word if, there's no if God exists. We know that God exists. Go read an anatomy book you'll know God exists. Go study biology, you'll know God exists. Go look outside at night, you'll know God exists. When your baby was born and you heard that heartbeat, you know God exists. Since God exists, miracles are certainly possible, even reasonable. Why would I say that? Because of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What greater miracle is that? There was nothing, and then there was something. If everything we see, everything that's visible to us, and even things that we can't see, came into existence because God spoke it into existence, why can't He turn water to wine? Why can't He raise from the dead? Since God exists, miracles are certainly possible, even reasonably possible. And so what do we mean by a miracle? I put it this way, a miracle is simply, I said here it's like a king's seal, but a miracle is a special act of God that has no natural explanation. When you read through Scripture and you read about the different miracles, you cannot explain them away with science. You cannot explain them away with natural processes. You cannot explain them away with the things that are tangible to us and that we can see. By definition, a miracle is unexplainable. It is only that God did this. It was something only God can do. That's a miracle. And a miracle in Scripture has a purpose because God is a purposeful God. A miracle is like a king's seal. Remember remember those envelopes that kings would send out and they would drop wax on it to seal the envelope and they would put their signet, their ring, uh, onto that seal, that wax seal. And so that when that letter was delivered, they knew it came from the king. It was valid. It was the king's word. Miracles are like that. Even through all out scripture. Jesus' miracles, Elijah's miracles, the plagues, the, the miracles that Moses worked, they all did this. They were all an evident mark, a seal of God's work. It confirmed the message of God and it confirmed the messenger of God. Why did Jesus do miracles? He did miracles to do good things. That's right. Why doesn't he do miracles for everybody? Well, he does if you come to faith in Christ. He's worked a miracle in your life and brought you from death to life, right? Why did he do it? Why were there so many miracles in the Gospels? Because it was to confirm who Jesus was and what he said. That he was from God, that he was God. He did these miracles. Do you believe that Jesus can do miracles? Absolutely Jesus can do miracles. And as you go through here and we look at this point, When we obey Jesus, He does things we do not expect. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. There it is. There's the miracle. All He did is told the servants to go and fill these six jars up with water and then go dip some out and take it to the head waiter. And when the head waiter in verse 9 tasted the water, now become wine. 
The servants, man, what did they fill those jars with? They went to where they normally go and they gathered water and they took it to those jars and they dumped the water in. And when they look in the jars, there's water in the jars and they're pouring water in, right? They know they've gone and gotten water and they've brought water and they filled these jars up with water. When exactly did the miracle take place? We might not be so sure, but they, Jesus told them to dip some of that water out. Maybe it's still water in the cup. Maybe the servant's walking over to the head waiter and he's holding water in his cup. Maybe in this moment he takes this step and that water just changed color, right? Maybe it looks a little different now, smells a little different now. And then he's like, whoa, and then he hands it to the head waiter. I don't know. Maybe it's still water and he puts it in the head waiter's hands and the head waiter takes it and the head waiter all of a sudden now he's drinking wine. When when did it take place? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus worked a miracle. I can't imagine what those servants were thinking. We just filled those things up with water and now we've got a hundred 50 gallons of wine. This exceeds our expectations. Why on earth did he tell us to fill it up with water? The problem is we didn't have any wine. Then look at this. What does the head waiter say? It says, He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Right? In verse 10, he says to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did the unexpected. You know, he does the same thing for us. Why this miracle? Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me say a couple of things about the miracle itself. John is careful to tell us that these jars were for the Jewish tradition of purification. Their expectation was that every time I come into my house, i got to wash my hands, wash my pots, wash my dishes, wash all that kind of stuff, make sure my feet are washed before I go traipsing around the house. i got to be clean because if I'm not clean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make everything in my house unclean and that's going to be unholy and God's not going to be pleased with me. So i got to do all of this washing all the time. Jesus came and said, look, look, these old jars, this old way of thinking, this old way of purification, it's not enough. It's not enough. I've come to do something different. I've come to transform the way. I've come to do something new. We are not purified by water. John the Baptist baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. We are not purified by the water that we wash ourselves with. We are made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It says this in 1 John chapter 1. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look, Jesus did a miracle to show that, look, The old way of doing things was not enough. I am enough. But this was a transformation miracle. He turned something like water into something completely different. Look, he wants to transform you too. It tells us in Scripture that we are dead in our sins, but Jesus came to transform us and make us alive in Christ. We are uh, stuck in an old pattern, in an old way of life, but in Christ we are transformed to walk in a new life. We have a heart of stone before we know Christ, but when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're given a heart of flesh. We are transformed in our minds. We are buying the lies of the enemy once before, but in Jesus Christ we are following after the truth. We are transformed by Jesus. And I want to make this final point to wrap it up this way. The more we are with Jesus, the more our faith grows. Look at verse 11. 
The author, John, tells us this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Look, this miracle was not for the entire wedding feast. The head waiter, he never knew what happened. All he knows is that the best wine came second. Which, that's a great observation right there, that what work Jesus wants to do in you and in your life and in your family and in your community and through you, what he wants to do exceeds our expectations. It is always better than what you planned yourself. The work and the transformation from Jesus is always better. The more we are with Jesus, how did it affect the disciples? They believed. But I thought they believed before. Andrew and Philip and and Nathaniel, they believed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. We read about that in chapter 1, right? Faith starts out young, but it grows. How does it grow? The more we are with Jesus, the more we abide in Jesus, the more that we spend with Jesus, the more that we live in Jesus, the more he will grow your faith. And I had to end it this way. The more our faith grows, the more we are with Jesus. The more our faith grows, the more we will want to abide in him. What did they do in verse 12? They went to Capernaum, to Jesus' house, his mom, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Wow, you see what we just saw? Did you see what Jesus just did? Did you see the transformation that he just worked? Man, that was a miracle. And what did they do? They didn't just go home and close their Bibles and put it away and set it down until we get back next week. No, i got to be with Jesus I got to stay with him. I got to hear from him. I got to learn from him. And for a few days, they rested and stayed with Jesus. The more our faith grows, the more we want to be with him. I'm going to invite Chrissy up to to play. But as we close this narrative, as we see what Jesus did, the question goes back to what are your expectations? Are you you limiting God in what He can do? Is Is your faith a growing faith? Or is your faith still today what it was 20 years ago? 25 years ago? Or five years ago? Is your faith growing? As your faith grows, do you find in yourself, I can't get away from Jesus. I just got to have more of Him. Or is your walk with Jesus simply, hey, I got Him enough today. Yeah, He did that miracle. That was something. That's great. That was a good sermon, preacher. You did really good. I'm going to put that down and I'll come back next week. Or maybe three weeks. I'm busy the next two Sundays. I can't come. I'll be back in three weeks. Man, The more our faith grows, the more we can't get away from it. Where are you? In this time right now, the invitation is simple. I invite you to pray right where you are. You can come to the front and pray. If you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can come right now and you can talk with me. You can talk with a neighbor about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, about what it means to believe in Him and trust in Him.
there's areas in your life where you're not obeying and you're not following him, in these moments, I encourage you to confess those. Let him know and ask him to be Lord of your life in those areas and help you to begin doing what he's called you to do. Be faithful and obedient. If you're interested in joining our church and joining in with what God is doing through this congregation to reach the community with the gospel, come talk with me. You can talk with me now. You can pray about it now. You can come and talk to me later. I'll be right up here at the front after we go. But in this moment, it's you and God. Pray and respond to him in faith. Let's pray together.